this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is, once again, inflation is petering off, uh, dying down, down to 3.1%, which is a far cry from 9.1%. And job creation continues, growth uh, continues. So despite the caterwauling, uh, the economic outlook is quite rosy, and even gas prices are continuing to go down. So let's hope people notice, and frankly, they do notice when it matters not in response to pollsters, but in their spending habits. And spending continues to be strong, which will fuel the economic recovery. But of course, much of the world's attention is on two hotspots. First, let's talk about Ukraine. The president of Ukraine was on the Hill on Tuesday, President Zelensky, pleading with Congress to continue to fund Ukraine, understanding that Ukraine is decimating a enemy of the United States, Russia. It is knocking out large segments of its military. It is taking a stand for freedom and for the security of Europe. And Republicans are futzing around because they are acting at the beck and call of Trump, who is infatuated with Vladimir Putin. They are using it as a pretext to demand all sorts of vague and unspecific demands on the border and on immigration. And we don't know whether this is going to happen or not. Uh, they may well cut off Ukraine um, at a very critical time um, and when there's no more money in the bank, as it were. Now, I would refer back to an important report that came out earlier this year, and that essentially reminded the administration that there is executive authority right now, without Congress acting, to use the funds that they have frozen, the Russian oligarchs, the money that they seized, the money they impounded, and give that to Ukraine in order to help fund the war. And I would compare commend this to the administration. I realize that it's Congress's responsibility and they want to put the Republicans on the spot. But if it comes down to using a mechanism which is legal, which is available to the administration or letting Ukraine go under, I would strongly recommend that they come to Ukraine's rescue. Now, we also, of course, have the raging battle in Gaza as Israel continues its quest to destroy Hamas. Quite frankly, if you've noticed in the last few days, the reports of uh, Palestinian deaths has been greatly reduced and rather muted. And that is because my understanding is that they are no longer doing widespread bombing. They are fighting, frankly, in the tunnels and in very close quarters in the southern part of Gaza as they try to attack this tunnel network and try to wipe out the leadership of Hamas. We certainly hope that goes smoothly and quickly and that, in fact, there are no more civilian casualties. Every casualty is a monstrous consequence of Hamas's decision to attack Israel and then to hide amongst civilians. But there is also more disturbing news, of course, and that is that we are now beginning to hear from hostages and hostages doctors and family members that hostages have been terribly abused in captivity, including sexually abused. And 
This is a, another war crime. This is another monstrosity. And it simply underscores the need to demand that the Red Cross be allowed access to these people and that all the hostages be released. It's very well and good to say we should demand an immediate ceasefire. But a ceasefire without the removal of Hamas and without the return of every one of the hostages is not a ceasefire that any country should be expected to accept. And meanwhile, the controversy rages on college campuses. The president of Penn, as most of you know, was um, convinced, persuaded to step down. Uh, after her atrocious testimony, but really more than that. Uh, over a period of weeks and months, she has utterly failed to gain the confidence of the trustees, the donors, the alumni, many of the students in her inability to confront uh, anti-Semitic speech, attacks on Jewish students, and the like. And she did not survive that debacle on Capitol Hill. However, the other two presidents, uh, as of this recording on Tuesday, remain. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. There's no one who has been more critical of the testimony than I have. But that said, it is important to have people on the inside who have the confidence of the uh, academic community who nevertheless um, have had their consciousness raised, if you will. These people are good allies to have. They understand now, I think for the first time, that their own policies against threats, intimidation, hate speech actually apply to Jewish students, as hard as that may be to accept for many of them, that if you're going to have these policies, and no one said they had to, they chose to do so on their own. They wanted a certain academic environment, and they are entitled to do that. But once you have those in place, you must treat all students the same. That's the law. That's Title VI, which is part of our um, federal code, um, which they must abide by. Um, and it essentially says you can't treat one group of students differently than another group of students. That's discrimination. And in fact, they have. They have not extended the same protections to Jewish students that they have to Blacks, LGBTQ students, others uh, in protected groups. And if it took this incident to get them to wake up, to realize that they cannot tolerate anti-Semitic demonstrations, anti-Semitic harassment, death threats, and the rest, then perhaps we can extract something positive from this um, terrible episode. And they will have a tough time of it. Uh, make no mistake about it. And here's why. There are certain academic departments and studies on these campuses that are blatantly anti-Zionist, not critical of Israel, but deny Israel's right to exist. And denying Israel's right to exist, preaching slogans like from the river to the sea, are not only anti-Zionist, they are anti-Semitic. And if you look at the international definition of anti-Semitism, if you look at the United States definition of anti-Semitism, denying the Jewish people a homeland meets the test. We are not talking about criticizing the government. Anyone and everyone is free to 
criticize the Israeli government. I've done it. Many other people have done it. The administration has done it. But that's a far cry from saying Israel is a, quote, colonizer, a falsehood. It's a far cry from saying Israel has unfairly, illegally um, claimed a spot in the Middle East. That, my friends, is anti-Semitism. And you can see where this is headed. The administrators who now must defend Jewish students from anti-Semitic attacks and intimidation are going to come right up against these professors and students and others who have bought into this narrative that, I will be candid, is in fact anti-Semitic. Now, they made this bed. They can sleep in it. They can figure out how to navigate themselves through this. And frankly, it's not all that hard. There's a difference between what a professor is allowed to teach in a classroom and how students are treated as they try to go about their business on campus. Um, It is different um, as to what is taught in an academic setting and a mob uh, seeking to intimidate and to harm Jewish students. So, We're not going to see the end of this anytime soon, but at least we're seeing the beginning. And I do think it's been an important, as we say, conscious raising um, episode. And I think it's important that people in the Jewish community who have stood arm in arm with others in all of the major civil rights battles, um, not... um, turn away from potential allies, not alienate potential allies, and that there is a cooperative spirit about figuring out this problem and figuring out how to protect a fair, humane, effective academic environment for all students on our elite campuses. So we have that story going on. And then to top it all off, The ADL is out with a new report documenting thousands, thousands of anti-Semitic incidents, including death threats, including attacks, assaults since October 7 on Jewish students and Jewish people, Jewish businesses, Jewish institutions in the United States. It comes down to something like 61 episodes per day in the United States. That's extraordinary. That's an explosion. We were already at a very high level of anti-Semitic behavior that has really escalated during the Trump era and during the MAG era um, to unprecedented levels. But now we're off the charts. And the president spoke eloquently at a Hanukkah celebration on Monday night, denouncing the spread of anti-Semitism, making clear that the Jewish community understands he's got their back. And I have to say, for all the arguments about, well, Biden should step down, there are plenty of other Democrats, he's too old, blah, blah, blah. He is by far the best friend Israel has had, the best friend the American Jewish community has had since Harry Truman, who 11 minutes after the declaration of the state of Israel recognized the Jewish state. So there are problems. Um, And at times, um, if you spend too much time on the polls, which I've told you not to do, it's going to look grim and it's going to look depressing. But there is a lot right going on. The economy looks strong. Republicans' behavior is 
more and more crazed. The press is beginning to cover the totalitarian threat that Trump poses. The entire edition last uh, week um, for the Atlantic magazine was devoted to this. You now see regular coverage of this in both the mainstream media and in uh, progressive and uh, democratic circles. So keeping the focus on that, on preserving our democracy, on not getting sidetracked on issues which, yes, are important, but really cannot take precedence over preservation of democracy is key. And I'll end with this. There was an interesting dialogue between Liz Cheney, who was out promoting her book, and Stephen Colbert uh, earlier this week. And they got into discussion as to whether Donald Trump is the natural progression of the modern Republican Party or whether he is a departure. And you can imagine that Liz Cheney, having been a Republican all of her adult life, was making the case that Trump was really a departure, a sharp departure. Meanwhile, you had Stephen Colbert, who was arguing, really, how different is this from Newt Gingrich? How different is this from the Tea Party? Didn't a lot of this white nationalism begin as far back as Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy? It's an interesting debate, and it's one that goes on not only in Democratic circles, but frankly, in never-Trump circles, those of us who left the Republican Party. And many of us, I'll speak for myself in this instance, do believe that we were somewhat blind to the danger signs, to the warnings that existed within the Republican Party for a long time. At the same time, seeing the antecedents, seeing the precursors of Donald Trump, I think we can also acknowledge that he took this much further and took the party and the country in a dangerous direction. But, and I want to stress this, this is a conversation for the day after. You have a reconciliation panel, if you will, or a historical debate after you've saved democracy. And right now, the focus has to be on 2024. It has to be on defeating Donald Trump. It has to be on making sure the Republican Congress, which is led by a white Christian nationalist, does not retain power. And later on, we can have this very interesting philosophical historical debate. Um, and perhaps we'll have it here. Perhaps we'll talk more about it. Uh, a previous guest, Heather Cox Richardson, has written extensively about it. It makes a pretty compelling case that there were a lot of antecedents of Donald Trump uh, going back not only in to the birth of modern conservatism, but all the way back to the 1850s in the United States. But for now, my friends, it's keeping your eye on the ball. It's making sure you, your kids, their friends are registered to vote if they're over 18. It's about giving to campaigns that are dedicated to the cause of democracy. It's about volunteering and helping as a member of our democracy, whether that's volunteering as a poll watcher on election day, or whether it's helping a candidate of your choice or an organization dedicated to democracy do its work. So. There's plenty to be done.
we are confronted with horrors as far as the eye can see. Horrors in Gaza, horrors in Israel, horrors on American campuses. We are at a fraught time. And it is no exaggeration to repeat the adage that the first casualty of war is often truth. But truth matters. It matters to history. It matters for justice. It matters in a democratic society so we can understand problems, so we can hold wrongdoers accountable, so we can hold our own government accountable. And we see this in big ways and we see this in small ways. One of the issues that I have written about and have been um, trying to carry the conversation to social media is the sexual violence that occurred in Israel on October 7th. It is, as our guest will explain, the best documented human rights atrocity in history because the Hamas terrorists who entered Israel, who committed acts of sexual violence, not sporadically, not occasionally, but as part of a premeditated plan, documented their own acts of evil. They filmed it, they spoke about it, and that evidence is now beginning to come to light. And we need to talk about what happened because, as our very informed, very expert guests will help us understand, that is what international human rights is about, that the identity of the victim does not matter, that if human rights are violated in one place, they can be violated everywhere. Our guest today is Professor Ruth Halperin Kadari. She is a law professor. She has held positions at the United Nations. She is a expert and has become even more expert in the details of October 7. And she's going to help us understand exactly what happened and what we in the United States can do about it. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you for having me, Jen. It is an absolute pleasure. Let me begin by having you introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about your background, your scholarship, and how you came to the issue of sexual violence and specifically sexual violence uh, arising out of October 7th. I'm a professor of law at Barlan University, um, Israel. I specialize in uh, family law and in international uh, women's rights. I'm also the founding academic director of the Rackman Center for the Advance Advancement of the Status of Women um, at my law faculty. I founded it uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, we offer uh, legal aid for women in family matters. We do advocacy and uh, policy work. We also offer um, holistic um, uh, emotional support for women in separation and many other things. Um, and I served for 12 years on the United Nations um, 
expert committee on the elimination of discrimination against women, which oversees the implementation of uh, this convention. Um, the task of the committee is to receive periodic reports by all countries who are members of um, this convention. By the way, the United States is not a member of CEDAW, um, and it's in the very good company of Iran, who is also not a member of CEDAW. Um, and uh, I was also the vice president of that committee for four years. I was also the chair of the working group on inquiries. I conducted the inquiry against the United Kingdom on account of the then restrictive abortion regime in Northern Ireland. So I gained a lot of experience on the international front and a very vast and comprehensive overview of the situation of women worldwide, um, including comparative aspects, I, I, I could say. Um, but none of this really um, prepared me emotionally to find myself where I did find myself on October 7th or rather October 8th, because on October 7th, at least I, um, could not yet grasp what actually happened. But on October 8th, on the Sunday, when it became clear to me that Hamas terrorists had many hours uninterrupted in numerous locations in the southern of Israel, where there had been thousands of civilians and soldiers, including female soldiers, it was clear to me that it was not only the hundreds and hundreds, now amounting to 1,200s, people who were murdered. Um, it was clear to me that sexual violence was also part of the attack. And it was clear to me, based on my experience and my knowledge and my hearing on so many, on numerous occasions when I was working on the CEDAW committee from women from other areas in the world, other unfortunate areas of war conflicts, of, of armed conflicts, where women had been specifically targeted as, and their bodies and sexual violence was used as a weapon of war there would have been no reason to think otherwise in terms of what happened on October 7th. And so I began to, um, to look for the information after I um, actually called um, the person whom I realized was um, occupying the exact position in the UN, um, which, which was... Um, specifically appropriate to deal with this matter, uh, the special representative of um, the Secretary General for sexual violence in conflict times, uh, Ms. Pramila Patton, who was a longtime um, friend, and, friend and colleague from uh, my years on CEDAW. And I um, asked her to start being engaged and involved in what happened in Israel on October 7th. And the first question that she asked me was, do you know if it really happened? And that led me to start finding information besides what was already 
then on the internet and the rumors that people had, um, we should recall that Hamas terrorists came equipped with uh, body cameras with the purpose of recording all their atrocities in real time and broadcasting them to the whole world in real time. The thing is that just one day afterwards, perhaps when they realize that this does actually, um, this, this does not do good service for them, they started erasing all those video clips and they engaged in the most sinister campaign of denial. So to combat this denial, together with um, some other colleagues, including um, Professor Francis Radai from the Hebrew University, we wrote um, an email, uh, a letter, and uh, emailed it to a number of United Nations um, human rights bodies, including the CEDAW, the CEDAW committee, which I mentioned, which I was part of in previous um, previous years. Um, so we, we sent them the letter. We sent to the Committee on the Rights of the Child, to the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, to the Special Rapporteur on Enforced Disappearances. Of course, this had a lot to do with the hostages that were taken um, by Hamas to, to Gaza and to UN Women, and we asked them to acknowledge um, that Hamas committed crimes against humanity in the nature of sexual violence and gender-based violence as part of the massacre of October 7. We asked them to condemn Hamas. We asked them to issue statements to this effect. And um, unfortunately, the response was uh, very disappointing. And since then, I found myself immersed in this issue of exposing and raising awareness and raising the consciousness and um, demanding the international human rights community to, to do what it is their task to do in that respect. And as you say, for roughly eight weeks, we heard virtually nothing from the international community. And I think our listeners have to understand that the volume of evidence, if evidence is what they are looking for, is enormous. It comes from eyewitnesses. It comes from people at the morgue who observe the bodies. It comes from first responders. It comes from go cameras. It comes from the confessions of terrorists who were interrogated. And I think there can be no doubt that this was not scattered. This was not random. Um, that many of the terrorists who were interrogated said they came with directions. They came armed with phrases in Hebrew for the women to, for example, take down their pants. They came with directions to, as they put it, to dirty, to rape women. And in any other context, this would certainly be a war crime. And as you said, in innumerable other instances, the UN has involved itself and investigated uh, 
crimes against humanity and use of rape as sexual violence. Now, I want to stress as we go forward that what we're discussing has nothing to do with one's views on the war itself, on the conduct of the war, on whether there should be a ceasefire, not a ceasefire, on what one thinks about the prime minister of Israel or U.S. policy, that what we are talking about is addressing the specific crimes against these women, believing women, and bringing those responsible for their crimes to justice. And I think it's very easy for activists and for those who are understandably very emotionally engaged in this war to try to use each and every event to some kind of political advantage. And I want to stress to listeners, you don't have to do that. You don't have to play along with that um, horrible game. We're talking about facts. We're talking about truth. We're talking about uh, justice for these women. And although I think Ruth is going to share a little bit of that. If you want, I think, the best detailed factual review of the atrocities that occurred, I would refer to you, and we'll put it in the show notes, to the Sunday Times um, in London, which did a very good job in very graphic terms summarizing uh, this account. And I think one of the reasons the American press was frankly slow to report, is that it is very difficult to wrestle with these hard facts. And editors, reporters have difficulty in what they call family newspapers or family um, newscasts to put forth um, these atrocities. So uh, I will refer our listeners to those details. But Ruth, if you could just talk a little bit um, about sort of the categories of things that have now been documented um, through all these sources of information so that people know there is no doubt, there is no lack of evidence. These are not rumors. This is not propaganda from the state. This is fact. Yes, I will, um, I will describe in broad terms um, all what I call the different dots that when connecting them together, we get the full picture of the premeditated and and planned um, plan to use sexual violence as a tool of war in this event of the massacre by Hamas uh, in in Israel. And and then I will want to touch a little bit also on what you referred um, to before the question of the um, political views. Um, because it's 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 a very it's a very important point to to make I, I think. But first, what do we have until now? And I want to emphasize that everything that I um, will address now is based on verified information that I received directly from investigation materials, whether it is from the police or from the IDF, from the security forces, because. They understand this is this is an unusual um, way of handling things, but 
since I already visited the United Nations, the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and I briefed and still briefing many, many ambassadors. And I have met with the um, High Commissioner of Human Rights in Geneva. I was also asked to brief the Security Council in the UN in, in, in New York. Um, that eventually did not take place. But because I, um, I am serving this very unique position, it is clear that everything that I say is credible and it relies on the verified and, and um, credible information from the Israeli authorities. And I'm not relying on hearsay or on newspaper reports, etc., etc. So first of all, there is a very detailed account of a survivor who was an eyewitness to a gang rape that took place a few yards from where she hid in the bushes. I will not describe the details of that uh, rape, but I will say that it involved mutilation, a very, very extreme um, cruelty of uh, mutilation of the woman who was raped by, while she was still alive. This eyewitness uh, survivor described another incident that took place not far from her, and she was um, taken um, a couple of weeks ago to the area where the music festival took place. That she was she was a participant in that um, Nova Music Festival, so she was taken to that area. And she found the place where she hid, and she also identified the place where the rape took place. And um, the the police found um, some personal items um, there, which of course corroborates her testimony. Then um, there are many pictures, um, footage that was taken by first responders, which. I have also seen pictures that um, uh, that 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 depict the condition of the bodies that were found by the first responders in various locations, and it is important to emphasize the fact the fact that this was in at least five different locations, whether it is the music festival or kibbutzim or um, army bases, um, and the condition of the bodies as seen in those pictures, and also as described in the testimonies of the first responders, they all repeat the same, the same description of women found without clothes in the lower parts of their bodies, bleeding from the lower part of their bodies, and often also exhibiting signs of shots um, to their genitals or their sexual organs. And um, this is also matches the description of the people who work at the morgue, at the Shura army base, which was turned into a morgue, the reservist whose task there was to identify the female soldiers who were brought to the morgue 
also describes the same pattern, the same condition of the bodies that um, she dealt with. Then there is also the evidence drawn from the videos which Hamas terrorists themselves had um, taped and broadcast, as we mentioned. Um, and I have seen um, a film um, showing the young young females um, gathered together by Hamas terrorists in a shelter in which they hid, exhibiting clear signs of sexual assaults, which, um, which could be clearly seen by uh, the blood in the relevant areas. Um, when you add to that the statements given by Hamas terrorists in the interrogations, which they are now undergoing by Israeli security forces. As you mentioned, they describe the instructions and the orders that they were given prior to the attack, instructions directing them to enter and to capture and to torture and to dirty or to rape uh, women and children and teenagers, and also referring to um, uh, a, a certain um, religious dispensation that apparently permitted them in advance to perform all these atrocities, which in principle go against Islamic teaching, so when you take all this together, there is no doubt that using women and probably also men and exercising extreme sexual violence against them with the most extreme degree of cruelty was part of the plan. It was intended, it was premeditated, and it was planned to do by all Hamas terrorists who entered Israel. It was not a sporadic incident. It was not several isolated incidents. It was a pattern exhibited and exercised in the most cruel way that the human imagination can fathom. After a very long period of silence, uh, the UN did issue statements. Um, the UN uh, Women Organization issued statements. And there was a hearing in New York um, in which uh, many of the details were discussed. What do you think finally changed the willingness um, to speak out and to recognize these atrocities? I think it has to do with a few explanations 
it obviously has to do with the hard work that many others and myself have been engaging in um, since since October 7th. It has to do with the international media that slowly started covering this. Um, also, thanks to the decision of the Israeli police to engage in briefings for specific uh, reporters from the international uh, media. Um, and it has to do with the uh, letters that uh, not just uh, me, as I mentioned before, on the first week of the uh, war, but others as well, um, sending letters both by um, law professors. Um, the letter that we sent, um, we had more than 800 uh, signato signatures, signatories of international law professors of gender and law professors from all over the world, not just Israel, from North America, from the UK, from Europe, from Australia, um, and uh, letters to women's organizations from women's organizations, including also women's organizations out of Israel. Um, I, I wouldn't want to call it um, campaign because I don't see it as a campaign. I see it as a battle for the truth, a battle for recognition, a fight against the denial, the denial campaign, which started as early as October 8. And, and I want to go back to the previous point that you made about the politics. It's not just the fact that this has nothing to do with what you think about Israeli government or even about the current war in Gaza, it has to do with humanity as a whole. When I met with the High Commissioner of Human Rights, I presented myself not only as an academic activist from Israel, I presented myself with my hat as the expert, as the international independent expert who devoted so much of her life for the advancement of the promotion of human rights, of women's rights, to all women all over the world. This is a universal battle. And calling the international human rights community to do what they are supposed to do is not only in the name of Israel, it's in the name of women, and of humanity worldwide. And that is the very essence of universal human rights, that it does not matter the identity of the victims, that these apply to all human beings, to all people in all countries. Because if one group of people is denied justice, is denied recognition, is denied factual evidence, then it can be perpetrated elsewhere, then denial becomes the rule and not the exception. So it is not out of some special favor or special treatment. It is in defense of the entire fabric of international human rights that it is important to bring this uh, to light. Now, I think we can all fill in the dots as to why it took so long um, and 
Part of it may be benign in that in the days after this horrific event, there was confusion. There was not a process that anticipated this. But I think we also have to come to terms um, with um, the reluctance of some in the international community um, to treat these Israeli women. And not all of them were Jewish. There were that has nothing to do with their um, national um, citizenship. Um, there were Muslim women, there were um, Christian women, um, but it has to do with a, if not a double standard, at least a disinclination to in- treat certain victims like other victims. And I think we should be frank about that. Just in the last few days, and you probably had much more information much earlier than the rest of us, it has also come out that some of the hostages, both those that are held and those that are released, have either themselves or as witnesses additional information about sexual violence. And the administration just last week, the American administration, the sec- uh, Secretary of State and even the President and Vice President, has also stated that one of the reasons why the pause broke down and Hamas refused to release the rest of the women and children was fear of what they might say about this topic. What can you tell us about the hostages that were released and the hostages that still remain? Of course, I do not want to go into details, but I can say that the um, concern expressed by the spokesperson of the State Department um, is, is, is not baseless. And information coming from the hostages that returned um, gives ground to concern about the about what um, the hostages um, and not only the women um, had endured and had been exposed to. And um, this, um, for instance, led the special representative of the Secretary General, um, Ms. Pramela Patton, uh, the representative on sexual violence in times of conflict, to issue a statement which uh, to date is the most far-reaching statement by any um, UN entity, um, joining her voice to the concern and strongly condemning in in many terms um, the Hamas uh, attack and expressing her wish to conduct a visit to Israel to meet with the hostages and to be the voice for the victims uh, that are no longer with us and, of course, to call for immediate release of all the hostages. And I I very much hope that um, her call and the call of all others um, will will indeed um, have its uh, effect um, because any day that these um, remaining hostages remain within the um, within captivity in Gaza uh, puts them in 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 terrible in terrible risk. And I want to be clear that, in addition to sexual crimes that 
conditions under which we are now hearing they were held, deprived of food, deprived of light, forced to watch the videos of massacres, that this is also a war crime. This is torture. This is inhumane and cruel treatment. And that once again, that if we are to uphold international standards, that must also be recognized. And I know that you have spoken to this point as well. Um, what um, what is a um, a legal or a um, a framework for understanding how the hostages have been treated and what is required of the international community um, knowing of their treatment? So there is no doubt that holding hostages is an ongoing war crime and treating them in the manner that you just described in which sexual violence is only part of the inhumane treatment constitutes torture. And because it was part of uh, um, a, a planned and, and, and intended um, attack against the civilian uh, population in, in, in a concerted effort to um, uh, capture uh, civilians from the um, enemy population, it constitutes crime against humanity according to the Rome Statute, um, which is uh, according to which the International uh, Criminal Court operates. And this obviously adds to the atrocities committed um, by Hamas on October 7, again, in which sexual violence, gender-based violence was only a part of, but Everything that they um, that they engaged in on October seven, I have no doubt that it falls within the category of crimes against humanity. And this is this is very important. It's very significant because it gives ground to issue um, a warrant order by the ICC. Um, it can also be issued by some countries that um, exercise universal jurisdiction. It's not that I have my hopes high that anytime soon Hamas commanders um, will be brought to justice in international fora, but um, it does not mean that the international community um, does not have a duty to pursue um, the, the bringing them to justice. And in, in terms of, of other ways that the international community can and should operate, what we aim for is uh, an objective external investigation on top of the proceedings that Israel itself is engaging in. Israel now holds um, 200 uh, Hamas terrorists, and it is now engaged in the most... Um, uh, complicated, complex, um, um, largest criminal investigation in its history. But apart from these criminal domestic proceedings, conducting an investigation by international bodies, such as the special representative or such as other um, uh, commissions of investigation, um, is is necessary in order to have the verified facts, the, the proven um, facts by the UN, by credible international bodies. 
it should go down in history that what happened on October 7 is in one line together with Bosnia, with Rwanda, with Darfur, with Congo, with Sudan, Ethiopia, the Yazidis, and next to them, Kfar Aza and Beri and the rest of the kibbutzim and the places that have endured these horrific attacks on October 7. And of course, that is the process that is underway in Ukraine, for example, where crimes against humanity, atrocities, including sexual violence, including other crimes, kidnapping, is being investigated by the international community in an effort to hold those responsible. Talk to us a little bit about that process that is underway in Israel. Um, now that um, the uh, evidence is being examined, perhaps from a different perspective or a different light than it was in the immediate aftermath, when frankly, they were still determining how many bodies, how many dead um, uh, persons um, were, um, were there. What is the process now in terms of evidence gathering and a legal process that would seek to hold those people accountable? So we have to differentiate between the different um, grounds for possible conviction. And um, as I said, um, currently there are possibly 200 different individuals that can be charged for accounts of committing crimes on October 7. It, as far as I know, and of course I'm not part of the investigative body or of the Ministry of Justice, but what I know is that um, these issues are still being debated on how exactly to conduct this trial. Um, it's, it's probably impossible to conduct 200 separate criminal trials, charging each and every one of them individually. Um, I believe that the possibility of um, bringing uh, collective charges which address the collective responsibility of all the people who participated in the massacre, establishing the intent, the, the existing um, previous premeditation plan and um, legally um, uh, concluding that they all shared with the intent, they entered Israel knowingly um, and with those instructions to conduct all these atrocities and to murder. So legally speaking, they can, each of them can be charged with all the casualties, the 1,200 casualties that um, tragically um, resulted um, that, that day. Um, and there is no need to um, establish the exact connection between one individual perpetrator to a specific uh, victim. It might be different with respect to the issue of sexual crimes, and I am not a criminal law expert, so I don't want to go um, into these details. But this is exactly why it is so important that a part of the criminal proceedings that will take place in Israel, we need to have the external international investigation to draw the conclusions about the 
sexual violence, the gender-based violence that was also such a major part of the massacre of the attack of October 7th. And I want to stress, we have a lot of lawyers, I'm a recovering lawyer, we have a lot of lawyers who listen to this, that in some sense in the United States, it is easier to prove a conspiracy, which is part of what we are talking about, that as long as there is um, a conspiracy and you were enlisted in any part of it, you're responsible for all of it. The standard is actually higher in Israel, that you must prove that these people were aware of the plan itself. But what I think you are saying, Ruth, is that we have that evidence, or at least we have the beginning of that evidence because they carried those instructions, because um, they came um, equipped with a uh, religious dispensation to do certain things. Um, and for that reason, there may in fact um, be, even in a higher standard of law in a domestic criminal proceeding in Israel, the basis for conviction. I want to turn to um, something I hear a lot from our audience, which is what can we in the United States do? What would be of help to the victims? What would be of help to the cause of international human rights? And what would be of help to the people who frankly have been traumatized by having to deal with this when you think of the first responders, when you think of the people in the morgue who have been exposed to the most horrific crimes. What in the United States can people of goodwill do? I think that a very important, um, and forgive me for using this militaristic uh, word, but a very important battleground now takes place uh, on social media. Going back to the denial campaign, which we mentioned already so many times uh, during this uh, podcast, um, this is where each and everyone who cares, who cares for justice, who cares for humanity, who cares for the truth, can actually be involved. Um, I think the New York Times uh, just a few weeks ago published a um, mind-boggling survey that found that of all um, young adults in the U.S. between the ages of 18 and 24, a third of them, in fact, believe that October 7th never happened, that whatever Israel says about October 7th is fake, is false, it's just lies that Israel um, is inventing. Um, it's really, it's it's unbelievable. Um, as as a second generation for Holocaust survivors, I could never understand how the Holocaust denial could actually take place. But what we are witnessing now is an even more unbelievable phenomena of denying what apparently was actually the most recorded international crime ever. Again, recalling that they came with body cameras and they filmed and they broadcasted everything in real time and just a day afterwards, denying everything. So social media is is very much um, something that I really urge um, people who care to 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 go into and to to refer to the media reports, to refer to accounts that are being published by 
survivors, by eyewitnesses, um, and to to engage in in denying the denial. Um, the other thing is um, the political arena, where so many countries in the world still do not recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization. The UN itself does not recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization. Um, this is still something, this is a battle that needs to be fought to mobilize the whole world together against this dark and evil terrorist group, just like the world united against ISIS, so it should be united against Hamas, recognizing that they represent the pure evil, that they represent the gravest risk for peace and order in the world, and the whole world must be united against them to eradicate them. Ruth, uh, I cannot thank you enough for coming to speak to our listeners. And I would urge them to, in addition to all of the American press and reports, that there is good information to be found in English language Israeli papers as well. And in as we said, foreign papers in uh, the UK. Um, so we are beginning a process of truth-telling and everyone who is listening here can be a truth-teller as well. So on behalf of all of us, Ruth, uh, thank you and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you for bringing this issue to the attention of all your um, listeners. Thank you. And that was Ruth Halpern Kadari. It is a very sobering, very disturbing conversation that we just had, as it should be, because truth is not comfortable. Truth is not a sop. Truth is not a way of comforting one's soul. It's a way of awakening one's conscience. And that is what is required in this very difficult time. It is very easy for people to play the what about game. What about Gaza? What about this? What about America's crimes? What about these people's crimes? But I must say that has no place in this conversation. After the Holocaust, when Nazis were put on trial in Nuremberg, it was not an excuse to say, but what about Dresden, where there was saturation bombing? That is the nature of international humanitarian law, that you cannot simply refer to others' wrongdoing in your own defense. Otherwise, no one would be held responsible for anything, because we live in a very dangerous, very fraught world, that each crime each offense has to be examined on its own terms, and people responsible have to be held accountable. And so if there is a message that I would ask you to take, and Ruth talked about going into social media, it is to put an end to the whataboutism, put an end to the denial. These things happen, 
They must be addressed. We do not engage in, and what about Israel? And what about the United States? And what about Russia? These things, if there are other crimes to be investigated, if there are other violations of international law, will and must be addressed on their own. But for these victims, for these women, they deserve the truth. They deserve justice. They deserve recognition of their humanity. So I thank you for joining this. And I thank you for the advocacy you may do. If you found this program interesting, if you found our other programs interesting, please tell your friends. They can find us at Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.